Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. I had to think things through and come up with my own solutions. I really fell in love with neuroscience and psychology, where it wasn't just about learning what other people had done, but it was about having novel ideas. So the body knows before the mind has caught up. And that's a beautiful instinct of how this instinctive gut reaction founded in bodily change can be more informative and more correct than conscious decision-making, which can sometimes lag behind Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 45 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sarah Garfinkel. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the followers of the podcast and YouTube channel for their amazing support. The YouTube channel now has over 170 videos covering job search, communication, resilience, networking, and many other topics to assist your career, please take a look and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I will be taking a break from the podcast over the upcoming holidays, so the next episode will be out on Wednesday the 4th of January. I will be interviewing Sophie Wade, an authority on future of work issues and author of Empathy Works. Wishing everybody a great break and success with your career and life in 2023. Now back to the show. Sarah is Professor at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London, where she leads the Clinical and Effective Neuroscience Group. She completed her PhD in Experimental Psychology at the University of Sussex before undergoing a fellowship in Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of Michigan. At the Brighton and Sussex Medical School, she underwent further training in Autonomic Neuroscience before transitioning to UCL in September 2020. Her current work focuses on brain-body interactions underlying emotion and cognition in clinical groups, with a particular focus on the heart. In 2018, Sarah was selected as one of 11 researchers on the International Nature Rising Stars Index across all STEM disciplines. And in 2021, she was awarded the Mid-Career Award for the British Association for Cognitive Neuroscience. Welcome, Sarah, and do stop blushing. (laughs) Thank you. I am blushing, Uh, but thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's funny. I always joke with my guests after the introduction, because when you think about your journey, unless you're a narcissist or have a massive ego, you don't think your career is that special. But clearly you, Sarah, have done some amazing things to be a professor. And there is a disconnect between your perception of yourself and the reality of your achievements. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're conscious of all the things we haven't done and all the things that haven't worked and all the grants that we're waiting to get. So, uh, But it's very nice to also hear, hear the other side. So thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I love talking about neuroscience 
So don't let us down today. <laughs> oh, the pressure. I think that's the other thing with the all the, the awards is the pressure. But no, um, I'm excited to talk about it too. So much of my time is spent not talking about it now. Um, so it's fun to return to the science as well. The thing I love about neuroscience is it helps us get some amazing insights into how we've evolved. Why do we stick to our tribes? Why do we reciprocate? It's what's helped us survive. But what fascinates you about neuroscience? I'm really interested in emotion um, and why we feel the things we do and the individual differences in emotion. I think maybe because I am quite an emotional person <laughs> and I feel it very much in my everyday life. And it kind of fascinates me how much that guides, I think, everything at heart. I am a neuroscientist, which really does think that emotion is a seat of, of drives and memories and desires and decisions. So trying to understand these networks in both the brain and the body, but also individual differences. Why do some people feel empathy so strongly and so acutely and others don't? And trying to understand that individual difference measure and then also because I think I do at the heart of it want to help people and emotion can be disabling when you look at conditions like depression, anxiety, aspects of schizophrenia, trauma and understanding those networks, I hope will have the potential to um, make people's lives a bit better. I just love that. And I really believe that if we can understand ourselves and why we do what we do and take it down to the individual level, because everybody is different and, and really figure out your strengths and weaknesses and get help where needed. I think that's right. And I, and a lot of my career has been based in psychiatry. And then it is interested with the individual differences, with the symptoms, with the, with the potentially extremes. And I think I very much rallied against the sort of training I had, which treated everyone the same and they were trying to find fundamental mechanisms of say working memory and yes while that of course is informative and is the basis of sort of modern day neuroscience and experimental psychology I I do think it's the individual differences that fascinate me where people are on a spectrum and why we're different and why we're particularly different in this domain of emotion is is what interests me yeah and getting it onto that individual level uh is is I think fascinating. And I think it's the way to really drive the field forward because when we understand nuances and differences, then we have the potential to target whatever mechanisms they are to help people if they need it. Going back to the individual, I'm a big believer in empowering yourself and self-reliance. Obviously it's important to speak to appropriate specialists if, if you're having difficulties, but if you look internally, there is work, uh, I believe, that you can do on yourself. I do think that's true as well. And I think that's one of the things that initially draws many people to this field is, is it can, understanding the science of it can give us new insights into ourselves, how we think, why we think, the way we do, and also the potential to regulate and optimize. So I think there is a, a window into insight into self if needed as well. Now, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share? And I know that you're a big fan of art. Thank you. Well, I love this question and I think I will choose a visual artist if that's okay. Because um, 
And actually, I'm surrounded by his art pictures right now. So it's an artist called um, Deben Korn, um, who was uh, sort of mid-century American, did lots of paintings in Berkeley. And you can see the progression of his work from landscapes and figures into very abstract art. And the abstract series, which I like the best, is called the Ocean Park series. And it's a series of abstract work where the colors and the lines are so beautiful and they're so striking to me. They're like more ordered Rothko's, so with more kind of lines and divisions. And I find them both inspirational and calming, which is maybe why I've covered my office with them. So yeah, the power of art to soothe and settle and inspire. I think we find that with all different, like other people find it with music and I find it with music too. But I also find music can sometimes churn up the emotions too much or take you somewhere else. Whereas art is very much, yeah, it, it's a it's a comfort and a presence. Um, so, so I think, yeah, the, the artwork of Deep and Corn would be my pick. I just love that point that you make about how certain pieces of art or music have an impact on you and potentially change your mood and the state you're in. Uh, What is the science behind that, Sarah? So I, and that's such a great question. Um, And I do think about literally how art can change our bodies. And because the seat of emotion is founded in um, bodily changes uh, and that can influence our feeling states very much like a sort of William James, we feel scared because we sense the pounding of our heart. Our signals in our body don't beat regularly, but actually they can change with external stimuli. So something like music that has, say, a regular beat, a fast beat or a slow tempo, your cardiac signals can actually change and align with the tempo of the music. So fast music um, can speed up your heart and slow music, which is sometimes sad, can can slow down your heart. And so you're you can have these physiological shifts that mirror different emotions. So music can actually sort of harness your bodily signals and make them align with different emotional states. Happiness can be associated with the faster heartbeat. So I find it fascinating that music can some sometimes sort of hijack your body mm-hmm. and help put you into the mood that matches the music. Back to the beginning. I believe that you were torn between art school and studying psychology at university. I really did love art, but part of the reason that I did so much art was that I was quite dyslexic. Um, So I was identified as dyslexic when I was still in primary school. um, And I was actually... Um, yeah really quite severely dyslexic so I used to go to Bart's hospital every week to work with an educational psychologist um, and my my writing was quite sort of muddled um, but I had good sort of spatial awareness and I think the spatial awareness helped guide the art Um, but I think I I initially I thought maybe my only choice was art and that was okay I loved it but I also think I grew in confidence and worked so hard at writing that um, something which was more um, writing-based also became more of a possibility. So I think partly it was possible and that shifted me, but partly also because I'm I'm so fascinated by people and I, and, and I think it was a desire to understand people more drove that. So it was a, it was a mix of 
yeah, of those two things, I think, which made the ultimate choice. And I guess I always thought I could always do art in my free time if I choose an, chose another career, which has proven to be absolutely not true. Because science, science is so all-consuming and uh, kind of takes over your life that actually I get very little time to paint now, although it's my dream to always one day return to it. I saw that you were unsure of what to do after university and then had a lucky break of being offered a PhD position as somebody had dropped out. My gosh, how lucky were you that that happened to you? Yeah. I mean, so lucky. And partly, I, I think I, I really did fall in love with, with research when I was doing my project. And suddenly I wasn't um, having to do, I wasn't having to learn what other people had done. Like, yes, I found that interesting, but I, I found that hard as well. And I really fell in love with neuroscience and psychology, where it wasn't just about learning what other people had done, but it was about having novel ideas and new ideas, which I could then test myself and see if they worked. And, and that's when I, I sort of, yeah, a whole new world opened up. Um, but I don't think I would have had the confidence to apply for a PhD. Uh, I think that early dyslexia just still to this day impacts my confidence a little. So I, I realized that I loved research, but I, I also thought, well, that's the end for me. I'll find another job. I have no idea what. And then um, I remember having conversations with my parents over the summer when I graduated, what they you know, asked me what I was going to do and me saying, oh, I just don't know. And then the phone rang uh, where they said someone's off, dropped out uh, of the PhD program. Would you be interested? And, and for ages... <laughs> Yeah, we, I mean, we couldn't believe it. But what they'd done was they just looked at who had got the best mark in their oral presentation of their project. Um, and it was only me and one other girl who got 100%. And the other girl was the girl that dropped out. So I, I was very lucky that it was on, on the presentation alone of my independent project, which meant that the lucky break occurred. I think there were two really interesting points that come out of that. Firstly, luck. You were only able to take advantage of that luck as you had talent and ability. Um, you got 100% in your presentation. But also, I think having dyslexia forces you to think counterintuitively and creatively to come up with novel solutions. Yeah, I definitely, definitely think the dyslexia. I now, I mean, I see it as as both something that really slows me down and is very hard, but it's also the thing that's opened up a whole world of creative and different approaches. So I definitely see it as helping me get where I am like often I couldn't follow things in the same way so um I had to think things through and come up with my own solutions and my own <laughs> solutions were sometimes a, yeah just a different path that other people would take and I think it's that different way of thinking about things and figuring things out on my own has meant I was able to forge a much more novel approach in my work because I wasn't doing just what everyone else was doing um, but I also think the story of my lucky break shows you that you don't have to be good at everything. Like I didn't, I wasn't the person with the best marks in my exams. Um, but uh, so because that wasn't my strong point, but I was someone who was good at independent thought um, and presenting those ideas, a sort of passion and enthusiasm. And, and I'm, and I'm very grateful that they didn't look for exam based marks because actually being a researcher is not about an exam you never have to take mm -hmm. an exam but it is about the skills that they assessed me on which was coming up with your own independent ideas um, and and forging a novel uh, research direction. I also saw one interview where you mentioned that you fell asleep in lectures 
So obviously they didn't hold that against you. Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, I did. I used to fall asleep. I used to fall asleep in um, the language, the psychology and language lectures. Because honestly, I just found them so hard and so boring. And also they were the night after my favourite club nights when I was, uh, they were the morning after, sorry, the morning after my favourite club night. It was terrible. So I used to sit in the front row and fall asleep. Um, and my friend Jessica used to wake me up, sometimes throwing things at my head. Um, and I always felt so guilty about it because the man the the professor that lectured the course was such a lovely man and I I always felt guilt even at the time but then when I returned to Sussex and gave my first departmental lecture there he fell asleep in my lecture (laughs) and I kind of felt like some equilibrium in the world has has returned and also I think I'm very understanding if students fall asleep in my own lectures which does happen I I sort of I guess it and it's okay. Moving on to your work what is interoception and why is it important? Yeah, so interoception is the sensing of internal bodily signals. So it is a sense. So when we think about senses, we tend to think about vision, hearing, smell, taste and touch. But actually, these can be classified as extraceptive senses. That is, they tell us something about the outside world. Whereas in contrast, we have interoception, which is the sensing of internal bodily signals, such as the racing of our heartbeats, or a a shift in gut processing or bladder. And I'm interested in how we sense these internal signals. And sense can be the conscious sensing, but it can also be the unconscious sensing, how those signals influence you pre-consciously. And it can also be the neural sensing, how the brain registers the signals from the body to influence cognition and emotion. Um, And I'm interested in how these signals are entwined with emotion and how interception may be different in different clinical conditions. I like that explanation that you've given, that it's about reversing causality, because rather than having the thought and then the physical sensation, it's the physical that happens first. So say if you're in a fearful situation, a pounding heart tells your brain that this is a situation to be fearful of. Is that broadly correct, Sarah? That really is. And you've just sort of a beautiful um, summary of what William James would have said, which is it's the pounding of the heart that arises and gives rise to the sense of fear. So it's the emo- it's the signals in the body that shape the way we think and feel. So I do have causality coming from body to mind. Um, and of course, it's bidirectional um, as well. So you can think of terrifying memories and your heart can then race but also potentially a heart racing heart could trigger a scary memory and it can go the other way as well but it's certainly I would say the sensing of those changes that gives rise to emotion um yeah so one follow-up question what creates the beating heart and the physical signs is it something on the subconscious level I feel like that's kind of the million dollar question. <laughs> so I feel like I wish I had an answer. So um, it's a great question, but it is also a deeply profound one and, and hard to answer because I think everything's true. Mm. It can be genetics, it can be constitution. So we know that an elevated heart rate actually in a healthy young man can predict the onset of schizophrenia. 
So is it, you know, what shapes? So it can actually be what, so is it genetics, constitution? Is it early life experience and stress that, that means your body changes in some ways to be more prone, to be more reactive? Is it thinking consciously or about terrible things that have happened to you that creates these changes in the body? Or is it the bodily changes which drive the bad thoughts themselves? And how much is pre-conscious and how much is conscious? And I think untangling all of these things is uh, kind of my life's work. Um, So to all those foundations out there, please give Sarah some more money to continue her research. (laughs) Oh, please give me more money. Yes, this is this is what we we write very much in the science world. It's all is all dictated by the money. So we write these large grants, we send them out to peer review, we go for interviews, and we see what gets funded. Um, and that also, to some extent, shapes the direction of your research. So yeah, I would love I would love to be doing more of this, um, and hopefully will. Um, and my PhD students who have just started you then start to follow their own interests as well. So so as you mentor more than driving your own research agenda, you also get taken in exciting directions with them. Thanks, Sarah. Can you develop interceptive ability? I've been trying and it's tough to count your heartbeat. I'm having problems. How can I improve, Sarah? So if you were in my lab and you're welcome to come anytime, um, then um, we would try to train you by giving you moment to moment feedback about whether you're correct or incorrect about whether you can sense your heartbeat. So what you did was absolutely right to try and just sort of close your eyes, monitor your heartbeats, try and count it and then have a an external cue to say whether you were approximately right or not right. So that you were doing the right thing, but it's it's a bit harder on your own. Whereas um, if I could help you on a trial by trial basis, so I could tell you whether you are correct or incorrect on each trial um, to help you with the fine grain tuning. Um, and the, the sort of tests I'd do with you would be a very simple one, just like closing your eyes and counting each heartbeat. And then I'd be monitoring your heart at the same time. And you tell me you might have counted, let's say, 30 beats in 30 seconds and I tell you whether you're right or wrong um, but then I might get you to do exercise to elevate the signal so interception is a, both a trait and a state phenomenon trait in the sense that some people are very good at it some people aren't so good but it's also state in the sense that if you all did 100 star jumps you then feel your heartbeat much more um, clearly so I could get you to do exercise and repeat these little interception tests with you while your heart rate comes back down again so when you're on your own you can do this you can maybe do something that elevates your heart then close your eyes and then feel those heartbeats which are now more obvious and then also notice them as they come back down to rest and as they fade you should hopefully be able to stay in the interceptive channel um, and see see whether you can do that and then with time, then just while at rest, you should be able to access those signals. Moving on to decision making, because I believe that that's linked to emotion. I used to believe that you need to take emotion out a bit like Daniel Kahneman and his system one and two. But then I came across the work of Antonio Damasio and gut feeling, and that's been linked to interception. What's your view, Sarah? That's great you um, quoted Damasio because, yeah, he really sort of shaped a lot of this field with the somatic marker hypothesis. You're absolutely right, being that internal signals can also influence decision making. And I think there is space for both approaches. You know, sometimes our feelings can not necessarily 
align with what the right thing is to do. Um, and there are definitely situations where we need to make the hard decisions, hard decisions, Freudian <laughs> slip um, <laughs> hard decisions, hard decisions that, that go again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so I do think there's space for that kind of rational thing where know why you're feeling what you're feeling and choose to override it. However, I think there's also the reverse scenario where actually paying attention to these bodily signals can also be extra informative. And there's beautiful experiments that have been done, um, led by Tim Dalgleish and Barnaby Dunn in Cambridge, where they set up complex decision-making card games in in the lab. And they use a card game because they can control an algorithm about what is a good choice or a bad choice with good choices being more associated with a positive outcome and negative with a bad one. But there's a complex algorithm underlying which cards are associated with a good choice and which cards are associated with a bad choice. So if you ask people which are the good cards and which are the bad cards, they can't answer you. It's not accessible to explicit knowledge. But if you look at their cardiac signals or their skin conductance response, that is their body response, it can, in some people, differentiate between what are good cards and bad cards. So the body knows before the mind has caught up. And that's a beautiful instinct of how this instinctive gut reaction founded in bodily change can be more informative and more correct than conscious decision-making, which can sometimes lag behind these body-based instinctive signals. I just love that. As I believe what you're saying is that there are these two almost systems, the emotional and rational, and neither one applies in every scenario, but it's up to you to work out which one should be used uh, in, in, in a particular situation. Yeah, I think so. I, that That probably is correct that we can override these signals and these signals can't always be helpful, but there are two systems, just like you say, this more control prefrontal cortex, um, slower system, um, which is under volitional control much more and allows you to override instinctive reactions. And those instinctive reactions can be actually informative. Um, and I guess the, the point is that it doesn't even need to necessarily be an emotional decision in the traditional sense just having something being associated with a good outcome makes it an emotional signal in an indirect sense like a card game isn't what you would traditionally see as emotional so actually yeah these signals can guide us in in just pure cognitive decisions as well great and you also worked on this study on the trading floor where the traders who had better interceptive ability were more profitable you're absolutely right. So we worked um, specifically with high frequency traders who said that they make very fast, instinctive decision making. Um, and we then hypothesized based on this gut instinct work that they'll have better access to these internal signals that could potentially inform these fast decisions um, and fast instinctive gut decisions. And we found that those individuals who had a higher profit and loss statement had better accuracy at detecting their cardiac signals. It's interesting. You have so much information coming at you to process all of that. It's just not possible. 
So really, you have to go with this gut instinct that ba- that's based on all the years working as a trader and all that knowledge. And on a personal note, my mum is a, an anaesthetist. And when she is anaesthetizing a patient, she's not thinking about every single thing she has learned. She knows what she has to do. But I suppose in a situation where things go slightly awry, that's when the real skill and knowledge and the professional experience kick in. So what the way I look at it is that as a professional, you've got this 20 to 30 years of knowledge, which helps inform you. And you're acting almost instinctively, almost on guard. But it's when you see things going awry, you hope all that knowledge kicks in. You can anal- analyze the situation and you think, you know, this is odd. I need to change my course. Um, what, what do you think, Sarah? I think that is the most beautiful explanation of it that I've heard. I really like the way you phrased that. I really do. Because gut instincts, when it works, is founded on knowledge. Yeah. Um, and 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 just like your mum's wonderful training of years and years and years, like were something to go wrong or using that information to steer her, that would be a very complicated, slow process if she consciously went through all of those memories and then worked out what to do. Um, But what happens is somehow all of them sort of get smushed together and then they come out in an instinctive decision. Um, And yeah, the cardiac signal and the bodily signal is this very fast gut instinct, which is just like you beautifully say, founded on those years of experience. Great. Going on to performance and managing nerves, for a lot of people, when they come to a big presentation, or for you, you're going into this uh, big grants presentation, clearly you're going to have nerves. I feel that when you have those nerves, um, it's a positive sign. And I used to play a lot of sport and quite liked feeling nervous. And the adrenaline that it gave me is it enhanced my performance. Um, what, what do you think about nerves, Sarah? Oh, it's it's a great question as well. I really like it because you're right. Under nerves, uh, your your sport example is really interesting. It does allow you to catch balls faster. What what sport did you play? Oh, uh, I play cricket. Great, I love cricket. Cool. Yeah, but I I think that's great because you watch cricket and you do see them do catches that just don't look humanly possible. Um, and actually, you're right. The adrenaline and everything will help you reach new heights that wouldn't be possible under sort of baseline resting autonomic conditions. Um, And they can definitely be harnessed. But I think it's really important for me to realize that um, stress is is an inverted U-shape function. So it's like an upside down U. So when you're on the one side, um, uh, then actually it enhances your performance and it can make you do things that weren't possible in terms of memory recall, agility, um, clarity, and it can get you into wonderful places. So that's a sort of ascending part of the curve. And as soon as it tips down um, into the other side of the curve, it can actually freeze you, disable you, block your memory. So it really is all about getting stress onto the right side of the curve. Um, to help motivate and inspire you and do great things and and notice when it's becoming too much and slowing you down. Is that down to self-awareness and understanding where you are on the curve? How do you manage nerves, say, before a big presentation? Well, it's a really interesting question. So previously, I would have said the autonomic signals are also not necessarily defined and mapping on to particular 
feeling state. So anxiety can sometimes look like excitement in the body. So what you can do is reframe it. And I, I've definitely done that historically. I used to get so nervous and I used to say, it's okay. You know, you're not nervous. You're just super excited. <laughs> and sometimes, you know what, that would work. Um, so sometimes it's about reframing and then we do have the capacity to do that. However, to to give a personal current anecdote is that I'm, uh, oh my God, I feel ill just thinking about it. I've been shortlisted for a 4.2 million pound grant. And I have a presentation where I need to speak for 30 minutes in order to get this 4.2 million pounds. And no, no reframing doesn't seem to be working there. <laughs> like I am so nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous about that, that I can't tell myself I'm just excited. Oh, no, I'm genuinely nervous. That's so much money for such a short amount of time. Um, and then I'm having to do calming strategies, you know, have a have a slow bath, do something nice, see friends. Like I'm having to do activities which push me into a different autonomic state to force my body back on the other side of the curve because reframing is not effective when it gets so high. That's interesting because I would have thought that the size of the grant is to some extent not really that relevant as ultimately it's down to the performance and the work that you do. And that is the only thing that you can actually control. So say with the podcast, I can't control whether people will like it, but I can control the quality of the episodes by having great guests like Professor Sarah Garfinkel and doing the research um, and just making sure it's the best uh, I, I can do. And say uh, in your grant situation, um, you, know, you have control of your presentation over the preparation, but not on the outcome. I think that may be a little simplistic, but that's the way I would look at it. I think I ultimately agree with you. Um, I think I do. I think ultimately it is in my control how I do that speech. But I also think how I do that speech will be shaped by how rested I am, <laughs> how all of those sort of things that will shape my bodily signals. <laughs> and And I do think more about... When I have these very, very big things now, which I find very hard, like, I mean, we all, you don't need big things to find them hard. I found other things hard as well, but it is interesting as the stakes get higher in your career and the numbers just get more and more ridiculously large that um, I certainly am conscious of needing to take time and stop and settle myself in a way I maybe didn't need to do at the beginning of my career to try and put myself in the best place for being able to do it. There's so many things happening all the time now that if you jump from big thing to big thing, then it takes its toll. Maybe I'm getting older. <laughs> like I can't just do it in the same way. You're looking well, Sarah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm like, oh my God, crikey, maybe it's just an age thing. But yeah, it's definitely about, yeah, taking taking moments, spacing things out and, and trying to settle myself in a way to come across best. Ultimately, it comes down to each individual and, and what works for me may not work for you. But also it's about familiarity and trying to recreate the stressful situations if possible. I once had to take an exam in Docklands where you had to get up really early in the morning um, and, and take a tube out there. And it was quite a, a long, stressful day. Um, and the week before, I tried to recreate that feeling by waking up really early. 
and taking some mock exams in a library near me. You're so wise because actually you are correct. I know this from some science experiments, which is that one of the biggest activators of the stress system, the HPA access and the cortisol response is novelty. Um, and actually they've done these wonderful experiments with spider phobics where they bring them to look at spider and you can see how how much their cortisol peaks the first time and not the second time and all these lovely experiments that show that just having done it before is something which helps the stress reaction um so i think that's a very wise thing about getting up at seven o'clock and and just going through it knowing what your body's then used to that you've gone through the motions um I do have mock panels coming up, <laughs> so so hopefully they will be the equivalent of you getting up in at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and you're right with with familiarity comes a sense of control, a reduction in the stress response, and yeah, I I think this has actually been a very helpful chat. Moving on to creativity, I love this quote from Picasso: "Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working." What do you think about the creative process? Yeah, so I, it's a lovely quote. I'm really glad you brought it to my attention. I do think because we have these sort of systems that work in opposition, we have sort of our prefrontal cortex, this system that's involved in more slow, deliberate thought, potential for inhibition, whereas we do have these fast, reactive, autonomic signals which aren't always under control. And if we just go with them, um, sort of get into the zone, I guess it's called sometimes, and and follow an instinct, then I also think creative things can come from that process. And sometimes you just get led by those signals and being able to be in a place where you allow that to happen, whether it's art, whether it's a scientific hypothesis, whether it's a mathematical way to analyze something, I do think that I try to shut off my brain and follow those instincts and they've served me well. It's funny, I saw a great lecture by one of your colleagues, Professor Vincent Walsh, where he talked about the creative process and the importance of putting in the work. So a lot of my ideas on creativity have come from from him and, and his work. So clearly a shout out to him for his inspiration. And you're very lucky to have him as a colleague. Oh, he's great. He really is. He's a wonderful colleague to have. Um, and yeah, I, I do. One of the reasons I love being in this area is also just, yeah, how many interesting colleagues I have. Um, and a UCL is a wonderful place to work. Moving on to leadership. I believe you have a collaborative view of leadership. How do you find your transition to leading your own team? So I do try to have a collaborative style because I think what um, was best for me, and I, I really look back to one of my own mentors, who's Hugo Critchley. And one of the things that really fascinates me about his mentoring, and he was a, just a brilliant mentor, was that he he inspired people with his own depth of knowledge and creative ideas, but he also worked out what scientists 
people were themselves and then helped elevate them to be their own scientist. Because we've talked, we started off talking about individual differences and actually we do all think differently. We have different hypotheses. We have different things we're interested in. And if you have a mentor that's always forcing you over into their space, then people aren't able to grow in the same way. So I think I do aim. I don't even know. I don't know how successful I always am, but I do aim even if I have my own very strong ideas to try and get encourage people to really think what they think and approach things the way they want to approach them and then mentor them about how to do that and, and get the best out of them that way. It can be hard leading in a collaborative way uh, because one also can't run a lab of anarchy. <laughs> like there needs to be some degree of cohesion and authority not in a in a strong sense but intellectual authority and I'm happy not to have it like I have someone in my lab who now who specializes in computational approaches and I'm very happy to give him the authority in that domain but I think having having experts is needed in a world to guide so it's about collaboration with respect for the expertise that others bring I had another guest who was a senior leader, and she mentioned that you can be kind as a leader, but that should not be taken for being a soft touch. And sometimes you really do need to be tough and firm, and there does need to be some order and discipline. What's your view, Sarah? I, that's the part that I think I'm learning the most, where when I first started, I thought kindness was supporting people with anything they wanted to do in any way they wanted to do it. And that absolutely didn't work. And now I'm learning that that kindness is having the tough conversations, putting deadlines, maybe pushing people a little bit further than they might push themselves in a very gentle way. But that's going to be the thing that makes them proud of themselves and achieve things that they didn't think they could achieve. So it's about retranslating kindness into things that may not on the face of it look kind but they're really driven by wanting people to be happy and productive so your new students are going to have a much tougher regime now are they <laughs> no i don't think any of them <laughs> i think i'm still i think i've definitely my reputation isn't the tough one yeah. so <laughs> but yeah certainly i've mildly shifted <laughs> on the very untough spectrum and I do think that's something I probably will continue to work on as, as science as well can be, it can be brutal, you know, people are tearing down your theories and, and I do think, yeah. Um, having power for power's sake does not particularly interest me, but I think the the nice thing about having power and influence is that it does enable one to allocate resources to interesting areas and try and bring, bring people up. And I suppose from your perspective, perspective it gives you an influence on shaping research um, or if you're in a corporate how do you uh, build the the company yeah I think that's right you enable people to do brilliant things um, and I have people I collaborate with where I see them doing wonderful research and I will support them by putting my name on applications, reading through, helping them do that. One of them is Mahinda Yogaraja, um, who I think is doing wonderful work in the area of um, uh, uh, functional seizures, like trying to understand the nature of these seizures. And 
it is my great pleasure to be able to support him to do his research when possible because I, I really believe in the research he's doing. So I think it is absolutely about supporting others, however that is, to do brilliant work. And it's it's sort of a strange thing because you get to be where you are as a professor by leading research agendas yourself. And then you carry on doing that a bit, but most of your time for research is then lifting up others and supporting them, which I'm happy to do because they're wonderful parts of my job. But I do dream and I start dreaming about data. <laughs> like you start to you get taken further away from also the thing that you fell in love with that got you to this place in the first place. I was a bit concerned because I read somewhere in one of your interviews, you enjoy drawing graphs. What's going on there, Sarah? You need to get out more. Oh, I know. I was, it was a question of like, what makes you most happy? And I was like, drawing graphs. <laughs> oh, crikey, I need a more exciting answer. Um, and it's what makes you calm and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, that is true. But then also it's a sad thing that you also get to do less of that in your job. <laughs> so, I'm, it's eight years since I've drawn a graph. <laughs> on a slightly different tack this whole idea of emotions and if if there is a way of picking up signals from people you meet at work on or in your personal life to figure out if you'll get on or you'll have something in common i always am quite suspicious of people who appear too charming and present too good an image of themselves perhaps there's something going on behind uh the appearance which they're trying to hide what's your view sarah so I think, I think it's such an interesting question. I think we know some things from research and then I'm going to speculate off the back of those. So we know that our bodies have the potential to align with others. My heart has the potential to race with your fear. My pupils have the potential to get smaller with your sadness. So I adopt in my own physiology signatures of your emotion. And I think that's the basis of effective empathy. And I think that's the basis of sort of social interactions. We're programmed to connect. Our bodies are programmed. And this is all the sort of pre-conscious thing. And so I, I do think that that's one of the most beautiful things is we feel each other's emotions and that creates social bonds. And then I think it's interesting when those signals don't align. So maybe when you feel a slight disconnect with someone, is it that they may be pretending to be very sympathetic or very interested in you, but they're not aligning with you in the same way, which is actually authentic? So my speculation part is how much of that instinct that, oh, that's not quite right, or I didn't like that, how much of it is picking up that there is this disconnect between the words and the maybe superficial charm, but the actual bodily real responses which aren't connecting with you despite the the superficial words it has been such fun chatting with you sarah and one final thing would you like to give a shout out to anybody who's helped you in your career yeah i'll give a shout out to hugo critchley who was my mentor um uh, for my postdoc and he, I honestly think he's a genius. He is so bright, but he's also so kind and so generous with his time. And he he just makes the world an, a more interesting and a kinder place. Um, so uh, a shout out to him. Thanks again for your time. And how can people reach out to you and connect with you? 
Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, although um, uh, I'm not sure for how much long, given Twitter. So, I, but I've also just joined Mastodon, where yeah. I'm on um, one of the science next networks, Fedi Science, I think it's called. Um, and then uh, they're also welcome to email me at my UCL email account, which you can Google um, using my name and UCL. Great. And are you going to write a book at some time? I think it would be a really great read. You, you've done some amazing work. I keep, I keep getting asked to write books by like I'm quite big publishers and I keep running away. Why? <laughs> no, because it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of writing. And actually, I just want to run experiments. And I don't have enough time at the moment to do science. Like you're on a lot of panels and you're doing a lot of sort of um, admin side of science. And I try to save my pockets of time for science as much as possible and I want to do experiments and help my students do experiments so I think the book will not come anytime soon that's such a shame but thanks once again for your time and have a great rest of the day it's been a great pleasure and thank you for inviting me on your interesting podcast thanks Sarah bye-bye thank you so much for listening and staying to the end That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.